listening to the IRE radio podcast. IRE with you on your beat for 40 years. This week we're going south of the border to hear about child field workers and labor camps that provide some of the produce we consume in the U.S. I'm George Varney. On this episode, LA Times reporter Richard Morosi is our guide through the fields and mountain villages in Mexico, where cheap labor means big profits for U.S. companies and a potential risk for journalists. One of the places they had to go was a place in northern Veracruz called Panuco, right? Although the local uh, journalist tell me, Rich, Panuco is a dangerous place. They've had shootouts and cartel controlled. And they say, we don't call it Panuco. We call it Panico. Panico. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Panic. Coming up, IRE's Sean Shinneman, who talked with Morosi about his time crisscrossing the country and going out into the fields and labor camps with LA Times photographer Don Bartletti. Included in the online versions of Morosi's story, there were maps to help make sense of the different regions they went to. We'll also hear from former NICAR database library student Travis Hartman about some theory and techniques for adding a map to your story. But first, here's Sean. A couple of years ago, Los Angeles Times reporter Richard Morosi had been reporting stories about immigrants in the city when he came across a boy who'd been working in Mexican fields before reaching his teens. Morosi didn't know it then, but that kid would prove to be his first step toward a four-part series called Product of Mexico, which ran in December. Yeah, like most stories, it was serendipity. Morosi started by doing a little background research. He came across a statistic which, through a search of my own, I seem to have traced to a few media reports in 2008, which cite the United Nations Children's Fund. They were saying it's widespread, 300,000 kids out there in the fields and this and that. 300,000 kids tending fields that produced crops that ended up on American dinner tables. Morosi had no trouble selling that story to his editors. But then, he got to Mexico. I realized, uh-oh, it's not the story. <laughs> I pitched. Today, Morosi is taking us on his journey through Mexico, through nine Mexican states, out into the fields, up into small mountain villages, into labor camps of deplorable living conditions, which, as you'll find out, ended up being the biggest part of his series. The reporting took 18 months, and as you'll hear Morosi say, there was often this feeling that one misstep could have dire consequences. Take, for instance, the three phrases Morosi was taught before venturing into one of these indigenous villages. Hi. Bye, and... Please don't tie me up. When it was all said and done, Morosi filed a series of four stories. An overview, a close-up look at Bioparques, a labor camp that was raided by police, a story about the shady practices of company stores near the camps, and finally, a piece about child labor. Photographer Don Bartletti got some incredible photos and video under tough conditions. And the whole package circled back to the U.S. because the workers in the series were picking crops that ended up in our supermarkets and restaurants. Places like Safeway, Subway, and Walmart. We're going to start with the child labor side. Because without that, none of this ever happens. 
So Morosi and Bartletti head to Mexico, and it quickly becomes clear that the child labor thing isn't this widespread epidemic it once was. It's happening, but not really at the giant agribusinesses that feed so clearly into the U.S. On the one hand, that's good news, but for a reporter writing for an American newspaper, a U.S. connection of some kind was vital to the survival of the story. It was the whole story. I had to link it to the United States. I had to link it to... Uh, you know, get it in U.S. supermarket bins, or else it's not a story. None of it is. It's not, you know, it wouldn't resonate. When you talk to Morosi, you start to realize just how close the child labor story was from being completely wiped from the slate of the series. Morosi had been talking to a family who had children working the fields, and for whatever reason, the family stopped picking up the phone. Not uncommon, as it's difficult for a lot of these workers to keep their phones charged and operational. But when that happened, Morosi had to switch gears. Luckily, he had a number for a contractor who employed child laborers. So he picked up the phone and made the call. I I called him up on a lark a few months later. I said, hey, where are you at? We're in Jalisco. I said, so we went down to Jalisco, and that's where he met Alejandrina. Alejandrina is 12 years old, tall and slender. She's a hard worker who routinely outpicks her older brother. In Bartletti's video, she walks the dusty rows between chili peppers in a hat covered by red protective cloth. Her shirt is pink. She wears a lot of pink. Was it difficult to get her uh, to, to talk? I mean, did... Ah, uh, it's difficult. We're talking about a poor, uneducated indigenous people, right? who aren't expressive to begin with, even in their own language. Morosi spent exhaustive time with this family. In Jalisco, Morosi and Bartletti were confronted by hostile farmers, a scene right out of Chinatown, Morosi says. Jack Nicholson tries to get out of the orange groves. All right, mister, who you is, the water department or the real estate office? Eventually, they got into the fields in Sinaloa with 12-year-old Alejandrina and her brother. Not really with explicit permission, but hey, nobody stopped them. They got the images they needed and the color they needed. And with time, Alejandrina opened up. In the audio you heard, pulled from Bartletti's video, she says, I liked school because we would only go there to write. Here, there is nothing but mud. All mud. There were two major challenges reporting on the child labor piece of the story. First, there was the issue of locating it and seeing it firsthand. Alejandrina helped them overcome that obstacle. But they still needed to be able to trace the crops back to the U.S., and while Bartletti kept snapping away, Morosi snuck off to dig into the reporting. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very tedious work, man. I mean, it's most difficult reporting of my career. Wow. Because you spend all this time in this, with these families, and the story's all for naught if you can't link that farm to the U.S. It's just, at that point, I wouldn't even be interested in that story. Morosi had to work around the contractor, who wouldn't say where his crops were headed. The reason I found only reason I found it out because I found out where his packing facility was, right? Mm-hmm. 
And uh, he's not going to tell me, but I hung out and I saw truck drivers there. And I was talking to one truck driver. They tell me, yeah, I work for a guy, Emilio Maldonado, out in uh, Tucson, you know, out in Phoenix. Not Phoenix, no, Gallus. Emilio Maldonado is a big chili pepper guy. And that's the guy I interviewed for my story. Uh, I eventually talked to Emilio. He confirmed he gets stuff from this guy and that his stuff goes all over the country. Painting the picture of child labor on Mexican farms took plenty of persistence and a little luck. It's, it's a miracle that we got any of this stuff. But as Morosi had already seen since he'd started reporting, there was a much bigger story to be told inside the labor camps. They just had to figure out a way to get in. It's easy to interview the people outside the camps. They're either in the irrigation canals, hanging out, whatever. Right. But I went with my, my photographer, Don. And Don, this doesn't care about pictures outside. He needs to get inside, right? I didn't think we were going to get inside, but Don's daring, um, right, slightly reckless sometimes. But <laughs> he just, we're at this camp, San Emilio. It's getting dark, and he says, I'm, just, I'm going in. <laughs> he just walked right through, right into the camp. I go, hmm, I guess he's okay. So then I can go walking in. <laughs> and that was it, you know. <laughs> Didn't get any trouble? Well... We're going in after this break. We've heard Morosi talk about a lot of different locations, and included in the online version of his story is a map that shows where farming occurs and where the indigenous laborers come from. The graphic helps add context to the story, but with so many options for using a graphic, why use a map and not a chart or an illustration to show the information? I asked former NICAR database library student Travis Hartman some questions about mapping for journalists. So, why should I consider adding a map to a project? I'm glad you asked me, George. I think maps are good because they are, well, ostensibly one of the oldest data visualizations out there, right? Um... People understand maps. People intuitively understand how they work and how information is laid out on them. So you're sort of already building on a scaffolding of knowledge, which is really useful as a, as a shortcut to get a lot of information and communicate what can be complicated information in a very quick and intuitive way. Okay. And how can I make a map or get the information to make a map? You don't so much make maps as you find them and then leverage the information in them. Um, You know, when I first started mapping, I was amazed when I went online and found it's like it's like a treasure trove. Like it's amazing the amount of maps out there that are are done by the city and state wherever you live um, regarding, you know, geographic information, watersheds. Roadmaps, of course, political boundaries, of course, but even things like streetlights and sewer systems and manholes and, you know, all these kinds of things that are part of the city's infrastructure or states. And, you know, it's really about knowing they exist before the story comes up and then saying, oh, we've got a story about the, you know, blue-footed woodpecker. What's their native, you know, habitat? And it's being deformed. You know what I mean? It's like if you don't know about that stuff before the story comes up, you certainly can't make a map about it. It's it's much harder to turn it around in the day, let's put it that way. And uh, what tools could a reporter use to accomplish that? Right. Uh, you know, the tools are not the simplest thing in the world, but they are well worth the time investment. Um, the one I've been using uh, is a program called QGIS, which is Q-G-I-S, 
GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems, and it's uh, it's sort of your Photoshop for mapping. Um, it allows you to manipulate and uh, alter the way that maps are presented. Um, oftentimes, they use files called shapefiles, which are basically maps with databases attached to them, um, just like an Excel spreadsheet. And that data in there informs, you know, basically the latitude and longitude, the addresses, you know, whatever might your map be of, it's what the information is contained inside of it. Great. And we will have links for tutorials um, for the install and as well to use some of these programs. Yeah, the, ins the install is a little gnarly. Um, it can be a little harrowing if you're not totally familiar with the command line or the terminal on a Mac. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's totally doable. Um, I managed to do it. Anyone can do it. All right. Well, thank you, Travis. Yeah, my pleasure. When we left off, Morosi and Bartletti had just entered a labor camp uninvited. And we'll get back to this moment, it's pretty pivotal, but first we should walk through how the labor camp story came to be. So in June 2013, word breaks that police have raided a labor camp at a mega farm called Bio Parques de Occidente in the state of Jalisco. Reports say 270 people have been held at the camp. They're not getting paid weekly, as the law requires. Children are malnourished, and ultimately, five people are arrested for human trafficking. That opened my eyes. That was so key. So that kind of piqued my interest, and I started calling around. But all of those people who'd been at that camp scattered. They went back to their home villages, right? And I thought, well, you know, there was a lot of regional coverage, and I'm thinking, is this, uh, was this significant? Was it as bad as these folks were saying? And there wasn't much detail there, right? Months pass. Morosi's in touch with human rights groups across Mexico to try to find the people who'd been working in Bioparques before the raid. He gets a list of phone numbers. The wonders of the modern age, man. Even, even peasants have their cell phones, right? Uh-huh. And sometimes they keep them charged. In December, he finally gets an answer. And this one guy picked up in December. I think it was December. He picked up in his small town of Tantoyuca, Veracruz. And he's telling me a story about how bad it was in there, right? And I go, holy shit. You know, it's a lot worse than, you know, it was, than was reflected in a lot of the media coverage. I go, my God, they really were held captive. They were, all of these terrible things were happening there. And I realized, oh, man, I've got to go to this region. It's in these small little indigenous villages where Morosi had to do some of his finest tiptoeing, where he'd have to ask permission from elders to enter where he was taught the phrase, please don't tie me up, where good luck getting a woman to talk to you, or look at you, for that matter, so where his interviews mainly had to come from men. Just to give you a sense, I arrived in Huehutla de Reyes, and I had a contact there, a local journalist, okay? Huehutla de Reyes is a charming, beautiful pueblo with a 15th century cathedral, a nice plaza. That journalist, big fat guy, with a tattoo echo in Mexico on his on his stomach, right? <laughs> with his room overlooking the plaza. I walk into his, his apartment. There's the whole town news corps is in his is in his living room, tiny little space. 
and they're ready to march on City Hall. You know why? Because the Indians in one of these villages had kidnapped a local journalist, and they wanted the mayor to send police to go get him back. <laughs> Yikes. One thing you do is you don't mess with the local indigenous women. This guy did, and they had him tied up in the local plaza. But even under those conditions, Morosi got something like six good interviews. Six. And that's the point where things opened up. Not only did the interviews confirm the reports Morosi had been hearing about poor conditions at Bio Parques, the camp that had been raided, but the people in these villages told Morosi that other camps were even worse. Uh, and that's how it became even bigger, because I realized, no, Bio Parques was not a one-off. It was not exception. It's kind of the rule here, because the same kind of shit that's happening, that was happening in Bio Parques, withholding wages, expensive company stores, is happening all over these big camps in Sinaloa, which is Mexico's Central Valley. I mean, it is the biggest ex- agricultural export engine of Mexico. It was time to go to the camps. You heard Morosi say that he and his photographer were outside a camp in San Emilio when they just decided to go in. To clarify, San Emilio is Agricola San Emilio, a farm in Sinaloa. So, back to that question. Did he get in any trouble? Well, we get in there, and I'm doing all these great interviews in San Emilio, which turned out to be the centerpiece of the first day story. It's like, we spent about 45 minutes to an hour in there, and just, I couldn't believe the stuff these people are telling me. You know, uh, they're retaining all the wages. They're eating two bowls of soup a day. They're hungry. I'm like, shit. And pretty soon there's a crowd around me. And then a woman comes up and says, well, what are you doing here? She was the camp supervisor. And uh, she says, oh, oh, that's weird. She says, I say, I'm with the L.A. Times. We don't ever misrepresent who we are and we're doing a story, you know. Mm-hmm. And she says, meh. Oh, it's get, when, when, when gringos come, they usually give us advance notice, you know, that's what Walmart does. That's what the Walmart guys do, she said. I go, what? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I go, Walmart sees the kind of shit we're seeing here? Walmart is seeing this stuff? I couldn't believe it. So, as she said, we had to leave, and but on the way out, she's escorting us out, and I'm just drilling her for as much information I can. I go, how many of them? How often do they come? What do they do? What do they not do? And she, she says, oh, they're very strict. I go, Don, you believe this? And we just have people sleeping on floors and <laughs> going hungry. Right. And they, they're they very strict. At that point, I realized, oh, my God, this is far worse than I thought, right? Uh-huh. So they kick us out, um, and then we just proceed to screw it. Every, every camp we ran across, we tried to get inside. It struck me as interesting that people were crowded around Morosi when he first went into the camp. This seemed to be such a tense subject, These people were being essentially held in labor camps, their wages kept from them. Would they really be willing to talk about that? It was one of the biggest questions going into this interview. Because it wasn't just one or two people speaking publicly about this, letting the Times use their names and photos. Morosi has dozens of voices in these stories, confirming and building off one another. How did that happen? You got to remember, these folks, nobody talks to these folks. Uh Uh-huh. Nobody. They're, they're, They're Mexico's invisible people. Yeah. Nobody gives a shit about them. They have no champion, not nobody. No representation. They're the Mexicos. They're history's losers, man. You know? And so when you ask them about their lives, everything spills out. You know? Hey, no problem. 
mi sueño es tener una casita, quizás un cochecito por ahí, y vivir felices. My dream is to have a little house, maybe a car somewhere, and to live happily. Tiene que sufrir uno para obtener ese sueño. So Morosi had the overview story, which looked at all these camps in Sinaloa, in Jalisco, etc. It centered on San Emilio. And then he had Bio Parques, and he had the child labor story. He sort of stumbled on the piece about company stores. He'd heard they were overpriced, but suddenly he had people telling him that their kids were being threatened with kidnappings by store owners. That they'd be leaving the camps in debt because they owed money from buying basic groceries like eggs and tortillas. He knew he had to confront the store owner. Okay, so this camp is at the end of a long freaking dirt road south of Culiacan. I go down this road, you know, and this store owner turns out to be an asshole. Yeah, I'm not coming back. You know, <laughs> I, I have to hit him with this. I was really nervous. That was the most tense moment in all the reporting. I, I remember that. If I remember correctly, uh, he sort of defended himself and, and talked to He was a it. jolly guy, him yeah. and his family. I sort of just walk in there, and <laughs> they're looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and, hey, como estas? Hey, yeah, I'm a reporter. Oh, you're a reporter. Where they go? Oh, where are you from? I'm from L.A. Oh, I used to work in L.A. Oh, yeah, I love L.A. And then he goes off and off. <laughs> <laughs> I was curiosity, you know. I was like, uh, they love it. Somebody from L.A., a gringo, he's talking to them. He didn't realize the gravity of my visit. He didn't. Well, at least at first. Then Morosi asked the question he came for. So some of these people, you know, they, they say you're, you're threatening to kidnap their children. <laughs> and his face just drops. Morosi spent about 45 minutes in the store. Bartletti snapped some photos. And then they got out of there. And then we realized, oh man, we, that was a great night. We celebrated. We had a, we went to Carl's Jr. and had a nice big meal. It's tough to overstate just how high stakes all this reporting was. From please don't tie me up to confrontations with farmers, to this death threat Morosi tells me about, sort of vaguely, to protect his source. The guy told my source, relayed, told, told my source to relay a message to me that if I ever come down to this area, I'm going to be picked up and disappeared. There was always this cloud threatening Morosi and threatening the story. Life is cheap in these places. You know, um, if somebody sees me down there or doesn't like me or wants revenge, they can just wait down one of the cartel guys and give him $100 and tell him to kill me, and it'll be done. When I talked to Morosi a couple weeks ago, the major fallout from the story was still in the works. He knew something was coming, but he wouldn't say exactly what. Well... Now we can report, as Morosi did last week in the L.A. Times, that Walmart and Mexico's government are each taking measures to improve conditions at these labor camps. 
Rossi reported about a, quote, historic alliance of produce industry groups that will focus on enforcing wage laws and improving housing, schools, and health care for the more than one million laborers at export farms. And in case you thought it was just window dressing, Morosi reported that changes are already taking place. He reached by phone a laborer of Rene Produce, which operates six labor camps. There, laborers were finally getting to sleep on beds rather than floors and clean themselves in bathrooms rather than bathe in irrigation canals. We've never lived like we do now, a laborer told Morosi, citing the Times investigation for the changes. Quote, We hope that things keep improving. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on both our SoundCloud page and on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. We also have a new website where you can browse episodes by date, speaker, and theme. We've collected all the old podcast notes, so you'll never have to search for them. Find it all at ire.org podcast. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and she can be reached at web at ire.org. IRE's Sean Shineman is a regular contributor to the podcast who wrote today's episode, and he can be reached at shawns at ire.org. Or you can reach me at georgev, that's g-e-o-r-g-e-v, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Varney. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that a little bit. Okay. Podcast.